Hello and welcome to the Clubhouse, Golf Monthly's weekly look at the various different events around the world in golf. This week we have a feature interview with Golf Monthly's editor-at-large Bill Elliott, who shares some stories from his 50 years covering the game of golf. Hey guys, it's Brooks Kepka. Uh, I just wanted to welcome you guys to the Golf Monthly podcast. Hello, I'm Elliot Heath. Welcome to the Clubhouse. We've got no Tom this week. We'll be back next week with the quiz and our usual weekly podcast. This week, we have a different episode for you. We have Bill Elliott, who was with us at the Open in Portrush. Bill has spent 50-odd years covering the game of golf, working for The Observer as their golf correspondent. He started out with The Express. We had 50 minutes in Portrush chatting about his career, his stories with Seve, Sandy Lyle, Peter Alice. So it's a really good listen. Bill is a great talker. He shares some really good stories, especially one of, of Seve getting angry at him, playing the par three course with Sandy Lyle and a really nice one about Augusta at the end. So enjoy the podcast this week. Again, like I said, we'll be back next week and please do leave us a review if you enjoy. Without further ado, here is Bill Elliott. Hello, welcome to the Clubhouse. Uh, Bill Elliott joins us today. Uh, Bill is our editor-at-large and a complete golf journalist legend. <laughs> I'm glad you finished that sentence. <laughs> complete something or other, yeah. So, yeah, we are at Portrush this week in Bill's home country, Northern Ireland. You're in the media centre with us and you seem to know absolutely everybody and this is your 46th Open, in my I mind. think it's my 46th, yeah, if my, if my simple arithmetic is is uh, accurate, yeah. The only reason I know so many people in the media centre is because I owe money to most of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, what are your uh, earliest Open memories? So, wh- when did you first come to the tournament? Uh, f- my first Open, I was uh, just joined the Daily Express and, uh, in Manchester. My first Open was the 1969 Open at Royal Lytham. Memorable, of course, for two things. The best known fact is that Tony Jacklin won it, ending many years of British despair and ever having a, an Open winner again. And secondly, for the fact that that was the very first year that the Open had a champagne tent. So yeah, once again, my that. timing was accidental, but absolutely spot on. So 50 years ago, how has the Open changed in 50 years? It's very commercial now, isn't it? It's very big. What was it like back then? Uh, Well, it still seemed very big at the time, but then, you know, our expectations and and the way sports events, uh, not just golf, but whatever, uh, were presented was very different to now. Um, It is hugely different. The actual, the actual, obviously the actual golf, the actual, that's the same. Um, The crowds are pretty much the same, I think, as well. You know, the the, the dress is different. there were a lot more uh, chaps wearing ties in 1969 while watching golf, um, which you might now see as a downside. Uh, yeah, there there have been huge changes. When you see the... Um, there were still stands around the 80s. I'll tell you the biggest thing. Um, when I went to my first um, US Open, which was in 1980, when I went to first one of those... I thought, oh, it's, it's America and it's the land of razzmatazz and rock and roll and everything else. I thought this is going to be fantastic. But in fact, it was a much smaller event than our Open was in terms of the stands they had. They really didn't have any stands at all. Did all the Americans come over in 69? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they did. 
Uh, who were the, the best players there at that, that time? Well, the, um, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, uh, Lee Trevino, um, and yeah. All massive superstars at the time. Did they have entourages? And, and they obviously wouldn't have um, the fitness guys that they would come with these days. No, they didn't have the vegan nutritionists <laughs> um, or, or the people who told you how to sleep properly or whatever, and or the physios or the medical people. I'm not sure there are any medical people. There would be some doctors walking around watching the golf, but they'd be just paid to get in. I mean, um, no, they didn't have the... They had agents, I mean... Well, most of them did. Jack Nicholas was uh, with uh, McCormack, as as was Palmer at that time. But no, there weren't there weren't entourages. And if you wanted to speak as a journalist, if you wanted to speak to a journalist, whether it's at the uh, to a you know a Jack Nicholas or a Lee Trevino or an Arnold Palmer or whatever, you did not go through an agent, which you guys for the most part have to do now. Um, you just walked up to them on the practice putting green or wherever and said, hi, I, I am, and could I have five minutes or whatever of your time? And, you know, nine times out of ten, if they were able to, they said yes. And you just got on with it. Which we is, all knew each other much more. Yeah, would you see them out in the town, in the pubs, drinking beers the night before? And, and yes, some of them, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. They, they, they weren't getting drunk, uh, as, far as, I, as far as I remember I could tell. But yeah, you were quite likely to uh, to be standing in a bar next to somebody who was competing in the Open, yeah. So 79, 10 years later after your first Open, you saw Seve Ballesteros win, didn't you? I did, Outlive yes. Outlived him again. I did, yeah. You knew Seve well, didn't you? I, I, well, I, I ended up knowing him well. I didn't, I, um, I, I, I knew him a bit in 1970. I first met him in 1976 when I was at the uh, uh, the Birkdale Open, which is where everybody became aware of Seve. That's when he finished second, joined second with Jack Nicholas uh, to Johnny Miller uh, at that Open, um, which is also famous for having Morris Flickcraft, Croft, sorry, um, try to uh, qualify for it. Um, and Seve played a little bump and run shot between the bunkers at the 18th hole. And I remember Lee Trevino telling me that he watched that from a clubhouse window. He had finished his round and he whooped and hollered and said to the guys around him, we have just seen the arrival of a genius. Uh, and he was absolutely right. By 79, I w had moved on from being really a football reporter who did some golf in the summer when football wasn't being played. Um, and I had started it in 1979 as a golf correspondent and covering a bit of football in the winter. So those two things reversed. And so I'd known, I'd met Seve and talked to Seve at various uh, European tour events that year prior to that Open, but I didn't know him well. I was, I was later to become, uh, I'm very pleased to say, um, we became uh, good friends. Yeah, did you, did he come around your house? Did you go around his house, have dinner with him and share some good memories? Uh, when you say my house or his house, do you mean when we were at various golf tournaments? I mean, he never came to my home and I never went to his home. But uh, we spent... I, I'd, uh, house. The first house of his that I went to was in 1980 uh, when he won uh, the Masters, his first wow. Masters. And uh, at the, when he won that Masters... His then manager, 
uh, I think as that would have been Joe Collette, a guy called Joe Collette in those days. Um, Joe came into the media centre, which was a tin hut, the aluminum hut at, uh, at Augusta, not the Georgian, uh, uh, by Georgian I mean Georgia, as in the south of America, mansion that you guys now go to. Uh, but Joe came in and said uh, um, to half a dozen of us, British journalists, Sebi would like you, we're going to have a, obviously a celebration at the house they'd rented that that week and we'd like you to come round uh, and of course we were delighted to come round so we went round Sevy wasn't there he, he was still fulfilling club duties um, when we were there uh, but his, his, his brothers were there I think two of his brothers were there uh, and various other people including two extremely attractive young American women who one of his brothers, I said, who are the girls? And his brother looked at me and smiled and said, oh, they're two of Seve's distant cousins. <laughs> so we know he was a fiery guy uh, on the course. What was he like off the course? He could be a fiery guy as well. He and I had some, we had some great times. We had a lot of fun times, but we did have some wonderful arguments. Um, one of the best ones of them were, was about in 1985, 86. I can't remember, sometime in the mid 80s. And Seve at that time was having one of his uh, his great rumbling run-ins, and this this time it was the uh, chief commissioner of the PGA Tour in America who had uh, stopped Seve being able to release Seve from the PGA Tour back into Europe to play things. It was one of those, you know, you've not so Seve. Anyway, this this guy was also he had been a professional golfer himself, and he for some reason was invited by the sponsors of the Irish Open at that time, which I think was at Port Marnock, uh, to come and play in it. And when Sebi came in for his his his, uh, his press conference be, uh, on the Wednesday before the tournament began, he took the opportunity to criticise this chap being invited along. He said he shouldn't be there because he didn't need the money and he was stopping a professional who would need the money getting into the field and playing and maybe making some... Which, uh, you know, had a, some some validity to it and what have you. But he was obviously incensed about that. And I was interested. I thought I want to develop this story. So when he left the press centre and we were walking away, uh, he was walking away uh, with a security guard alongside him. Uh, back to wherever I followed him out and went over Sevy, Sevy, and he turned around. As I say, we knew each other well by that time, and he said, "Yeah, it, what?" I said, "I just wanted to talk a bit more about the guy, the commissioner." And and Sevy said, "And uh, you, you may need to bleep this out, but this is what he said." He said, "He said, why the fuck are you asking me about this guy?" He said, I, I go to bed at night and I'm thinking about him. I wake up in the morning and I'm thinking about him. And now you are fucking asking me again about him. And as he said that, his right fist curled and he pulled, he pulled his fist back. And I thought, I think he's going to hit me. Now, and now, to be fair, so too did the security guard, who uh, rather ungallantly stepped aside to allow him a better swing at me. Uh, but thankfully, Sebi at the last minute... Um, decided not to hit me and instead muttered something in Spanish, spun in his heel and walked away. And I thought, well, I thought we were beginning to have a really good relationship. I think it's just ended. So that was the end of that. And the next day, Seve shot whatever he shot, 68, 69, came in for interview. I went into the, in the media, so I went in and I sat right at the back and, and basically sulked and thought, I'm not going to ask him a question, I'm not going to say anything, I'm just going to sit here, I'm not going to look at him. So he finished his interview and I got up to walk out and suddenly I heard this voice saying, Bill, Bill, Bill. 
And I turned around to Sebi, of course, and I, I looked at him and he, said, and he said, please, please. And he came towards me, so I said, what's he want to say? He came to me. And he got hold of my shoulders and he said, I just want to apologise for yesterday. I should not have said that to you. I should not have talked to you. I, I, and I then began to feel a bit sorry for him. So, and others are listening to this, you know, other journalists were listening. And, and I said, oh, don't worry about it, Sebi. I said, my wife speaks to me like that all the time. And he... He grabbed hold of my face in, in, in a nice way and said, it's okay for your wife to speak to you like that, Bill, but I should never speak to you like that. I ask for your forgiveness. And so we embraced. And actually that incident, while we were friends before that, we became really good, proper, deep friends after that incident. It's funny how that's how things work. So what are your best memories of Sevi then? Oh, having fun with him. Barring that. Oh, yeah, having fun with him and uh, arguing with him. Uh, he didn't drink much, but having a drink with him, you know, and having, having a laugh, having something to eat, whatever. Um, talking about things other than golf. Um, he, he, was, he was pretty much, I'm, I'm sort of a soft left-wing, Gucci socialist sort of guy, you know. But campaign, if I ever stood for, for election to anything, would be champagne for everyone. But uh, uh, Sevi was a typical, uh, certainly at the time, and I suspect still largely now, a lot of, you know, it's Spanish, is, or a little, shall we say, right of centre. And, and, and Sevi, he was kind of hang him, flog him, and, you know, <laughs> we don't put enough people in jail and so on. And we used to argue about that. Um, but in a, in a passionate but, you know, good way and what have you. Um, but I have some great, great memory. You know, he was great with my sons. I'll tell you what, one of my sons, it was it, it, nothing to do with me. It, 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 was, uh, it was either a match play or a PGA championship at Wentworth. And uh, my sons, uh, Simon and James, Simon's the elder, um, I think they, they were about 17 and 14 at the time. And they had come over to watch and they always went to watch Sebi. I had introduced, they'd met Sebi and we'd talked. And they were walking around with a big crowd, of course. It was the biggest crowd was with Sebi. And, and whatever hole it was on, Sebi knocked his ball left into the rough. And it happened to be close to where Simon and James were standing, you know. And he came in and he looked up and he saw them. Um, and he just nodded. And then he hit his shot. And having hit his shot, he then turned around and came... He was only about 10 feet away from the ropes where they were standing. Came over and said... You know, hello, hi Simon, hi James. You know, shook hands and three. You know, had a little conversation, then moved on. And um, my eldest son Simon said, the crowd around them after Sevi had gone sort of parted like the Red Sea to allow my sons to walk through them because they'd been anointed by Sevi. But you see, here's the point. I mean, that was very nice of him, and they were as teenagers, they were absolutely thrilled that he knew them and remembered them and acknowledged them. That. Not that many other players, even, you know, nice, nice enough people, though a lot of them are, um, would at that point in a serious round of golf, in a serious week, in a serious competition as the PGA or the World Match Play, whichever it was, as, um, would have, even, even if they'd seen them, probably wouldn't have recognised them because they'd be lost in their own focus and what have you. But Sebi could focus on what he was doing and then switch it off and could see my sons or indeed the good-looking blonde somewhere along the line. I mean, so he was, he was, he was a great guy. He was a, he was a wonderful mixture of arrogance and humility, um, a wonderful uh, mixture of loyalty and kindness and stubbornness and badness at times. 
um, I, 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 I loved him and uh, thankfully he had at least seemed to like me and I, I, I treasure the memories of it. But if you want, I'll tell you the story of, of uh, uh, golf, which I've written about. Did you want to hear it? Yeah, definitely. Um, this was this was in in uh, the other late eighties and the early nineties, and it was during the European Masters, which is stays and still stays, I think, at uh, Croncourcier in in Grand Montana. Um, which, for anybody listening to this, don't know whether it's in Switzerland and it's sort of halfway up an Alp. What happened was I was I was there early. I'd gone with a friend of mine, Mitchell, a guy called Mitchell Platz, who ended up uh, media, director of media things at the European Tour. But at that point, he was, I think, golf correspondent of the Times. And uh, Mitchell, had, Mitchell had just got a Porsche and he came up with the idea, I, I want to drive this through Europe. And so I said, do you want to come with me? I said, OK. Um, so we went to the German Open in Hamburg, I think somewhere around there. And then we carried on to Switzerland. So in other words, we arrived there on the on the Monday. So we normally wouldn't arrive till the Wednesday. And on the on the Tuesday, um, we were in we were in the uh, in the media centre with another journalist called Norman De Bell, who some people might remember. He did a lot of radio work at one time, and uh, they have a huge pro am on the Wednesday. It was really spun- I mean, people like Ayrton Senna, who live, you know, would play in this. It was wow. really high. Crom Montana's full of like I don't know, Gina Lolla Brigida, and you know. Um, and these 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 people, these genuine stars, played. And so it's a really glitzy affair. So they get everything absolutely right. And uh, John Paramore, who's who's uh, chief referee now of the of the uh, European Tour, probably the best rules guy in the world. John was tournament director, and he came in on the Tuesday, and he said there were just three journalists there: myself, Mitchell, and Norman. And he said we all knew each other. He said hi, guys. He said, listen. He said I've got to check out that the course is in good order and appropriately prepared for the big pro-am tomorrow and indeed the tournament after that. And he said the best way in his experience to uh, save a course is to play it. Do we fancy joining him? So we thought for about half a second and then said, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, so, and meanwhile, the players have been told they must be off the course by one o'clock. That was the deal on that day. You do practice, but you must be off by one o'clock because they're going to do the final preparation if any needs doing. So the four of us teed off at uh, just after one o'clock. And the first hole at Krong uh, has the ninth hole running back alongside it, if you can follow that. In between, there are these very tall pine trees. um, and, And so you can't see either hole, really. Uh, when you're on one you can't see the other so we all hit our drives and I hit my trademark signature high hook which went over the trees and onto the ninth fairway somewhere you couldn't see where because of the tree the other three the, the, the other three were down the fairway somewhere so while they went to their balls I went through the trees to find mine now virtually in the middle of the ninth fairway at Krong is a, um, a tall umbrella pine and by umbrella I mean that's what it does the branches come down like an umbrella. And in, in this case, they came down to within four or five feet of the ground. And my ball was underneath it. So I'm now faced, I've no idea, the green's down there. So for some, and, and meanwhile, I noticed there were like three or four players and the caddies wandering up the ninth fairway to finish their round, be good boys, be off the course as they'd been told to be. And I'm, for some reason, I'm stood there with a, under, under this tree, under the branches with a, nine, with a five iron. 
And suddenly I heard this voice saying, Bill, Bill, quick. And Sebi ducked under, under the branches of the tree. And um, I looked at him, he looked at me, he said, quick. And he grabbed the five iron off, off my hand. And he, he went down almost on all fours, because you had to, you know. And he gripped right down the shaft and he looked, he looked a couple of times. And then he swung and he hit this ball. And it took off, it went straight up, because it had to, to get over these pines. I swear to everyone's God, as it went over the pines, it turned sharp left and went down towards the green. Turned out it had finished three feet short of the green. (laughs) That shot, when, when I measured it out, was the best part of 185 yards. From the other side of the trees, I heard applause, and I heard John Paramore. John Paramore is a scratch golfer. He was Surrey County champion. He, he could play the game, unlike me. I could hear John shouting, that's Bill, that's one of the greatest, maybe the greatest shot I've ever seen. So I just came out of the tree. Meanwhile, Sebi had gone. I just came out of the trees, you know, looking suitably sort of, oh, it was nothing. I just, you know, five iron and knocked it up. And so we talked, and we carried on. I never said a word, and it was only about four and a half hours later when we're having a drink in the clubhouse that I said, by the way, that actually was the greatest shot I never hit. <laughs> it was hit by Seve Ballesteros. Wow. <laughs> now, again, what that shows you is Seve having the sense of mischief, the sense of fun to do that. You know, um, Nick Fowler, bless him, who you know, I have huge respect for as a golfer, Nick would never have had, and, and most of the rest wouldn't have had, that seen that opportunity to have a bit of fun. And as it turned out, the guys, the guys who were playing, who were the other guys I playing with that day, when I told them the story, they didn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, back in those times, the best golfers in the world travelled a lot, didn't they? All yeah. over the world to these yeah. historical Absolutely, events. Absolutely, yeah. Did you travel with them? Did you go to Australia and South Africa? And- I, in South Africa, yes. Australia, no. I've never been to Australia. The reason, the reason I never went to Australia really was it's a long way. And I didn't need to for whatever it was. There was never anything big enough to make whatever newspaper I was on at the time saying, you must go to Australia. We need you to go to Australia. There just isn't. But other places, yeah, America, all around Europe, you know, every country in Europe where a European tour event was played. Do you think it's sad now that the world's best players, mainly the Americans, tend to stay in their home country and don't go and travel the world and play all these international events. I know Gary Player is somebody who, mm. who thinks you need to travel the world to be a true champion. And I think, it, I, I, I think that there's a huge amount of truth in that, that, that Gary... Incidentally, Gary Player, if you're talking about the greatest golf, everyone says, well, statistically, it's Jack Nicklaus, 18 majors, you know, and so on, and you, you can go back in history and talk about others. If you're talking about the greatest golfer who's ever lived, Gary Player has to be in that discussion. And the reason he needs to be in that, not only for the number of majors and other events that, that, that he won, but the fact that he did it, he had to travel from South Africa every time to do it. I mean, I forget what he told me he used to do. When he used to, used to have to go, say, to America to play in the Masters, the US Open or whatever, he would have to catch a flight from South Africa to, some, to somewhere else, to the top end of Africa, and then a flight from there to London or, or Paris or wherever it might be to get a connection to go across. It used to take him like three days to get to America to go play in these things. Um, so if, you've, if Gary Player had been one in Ohio, as Jack Nicholas was, he might have won more than 18 majors. 
So yeah, and and I I do I do have a um I don't think it's completely true, but there is a truth in what Gary has said, and I think you're you're seeing that demonstrated at the moment with Brooks Kepka, you know, because of, because of you know Brooks coming and playing on the what he played on the Challenge Tour, didn't he? And then he, and and then he played on the European Tour, and he says. He says, apart from develop, developing him as a player, because you're experiencing different, different climactic conditions, different grasses, different sorts of courses, different everything, and as well as by a process of osmosis almost, uh, you're digesting different cultures, different ways of living life and so on, makes you a more rounded human being, or should do. And, and you, you're seeing that Brooks Kepka at the moment demonstrate that's... I'm sure that's a crucial reason why he is as good as he is at the moment. That's a great point. So, working as the Observer Golf Correspondent, mm-hmm. what was golf like back in those days in terms of interest? Because now, I wouldn't say it's a small sport, it's a massive sport, but it's dwarfed by football and and tennis, like we've seen Wimbledon recently. Did you have a, a huge golfing audience there? And has it dropped since? <laughs> Yes, I think the audience has dropped a bit. Uh, there are various reasons for that. One, one is that you, you know, you've got you've got to buy a Sky subscription to see a lot of the golf, and some people choose not to not to do that, and some people can't afford to do that. Um, in the eighties uh, and and through to part of the nineties, anyway, uh, two things happened. One, one is that golf was being shown on 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 free to air. Uh, television on the BBC and actually people forget ITV had the Masters at one time and some other golf tournaments Uh, so everyone was able to see it as they were able to see cricket at that time as well which is which has gone the same way Uh, and not only that in Europe we had the emergence of uh, well I call them Generation X and and that's Sebi Ballesteros, Nick Faldo, Sandy Lyle, Ian Woosnam and Bernard Langer And, and What's, what to me is, is interesting or extraordinary in, in its own way is that these five guys who've, on whose achievements the European Tour prospered, hugely prospered and grew, um, several things. One is they all remained, as it were, quote, loyal, unquote, to the European Tour. So they didn't go and decamp immediately to America. They went into America like a raiding party, Played three or four tournaments, won a Masters, won something else, came back out. Uh, but came back to Europe with playing the French Open, the Spanish Open, the Italian Open, the Dutch Open, the, the, whatever was going on. Um, so they, they, they continued to be over, if I say over here, because we're in Northern Ireland, but over here, because they play in the Irish Open all the time as well. Uh, and at, at the, so you got those two combinations, and they're, they're a bit like, if you're going to have five guys emulating the Beatles, you know, the Beatles, uh, one of the great things about the Beatles, the greatest thing was their music, but the, one of the great things was there was something, something for everybody. If you wanted a sort of caustic, smart-alecky guy, you had John Lennon. If you, if you wanted a, a, a sort of pretty boy next door, it was Paul McCartney. If you wanted a more cerebral, deep-thinking person, it was George Harrison. And if you just wanted somebody to have a drink with, you'd Ringo Starr. And... And these guys, you know, Sebi, Nick Faldo, Sandy Lal, etc., there was something for everybody there too. And with Sebi in particular, he was such a good-looking guy, such a charismatic guy, that news pages as well as sports pages loved him. And so golf moved from sports pages onto news pages onto front pages. 
and his popularity and his popularity grew. And 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 then what happened was a the subscription TV uh, um, things came in. Golf, lot of you know, golf wasn't shown as much, and at the same time, football exploded and ultimately turning into the Premiership. And the fact is that football has eaten almost every other sport. But yeah, you mentioned Sandy Lyle there. Mm-hmm. I know you have a good relationship with yes. him, what you did. Yes. Please tell me your Masters par 3 story. <laughs> well, um, yes, uh, yes, Sandy again. Uh, you, you see, in those days, we used to fly in the same place. They didn't have private jets. We used to fly in the same place, stay in the same hotels. We used to have quite a lot of meals together. You know, what are you doing? We're all bored. You know, they finished work golf we've finished work writing about golf we're in the same hotel let's sit down the table and have a pizza or whatever it is you're having uh, and so we all got to know each other and 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 sandy again you know be, you know was a was a pal and, uh, his house i have stayed at times. and um anyway it was coming up uh it's now 14 years ago because i'm really old now but it was 14 years, uh, 15 years ago to be more accurate, and I, at some open, wherever that was, and and I was in the champagne tent. <laughs> and it seems like you enjoyed the champagne. Tent. I, the champagne tent was very important. It, they don't have it anymore. But the champagne, because if you went in the champagne, you could go in the champagne tent and drink water if you wanted. You'd have to take it in with you. Um, but you're having a glass of champagne, and if you sat in there long enough, Almost everybody of any importance in the world of golf came in as well. So journalistically, it was a great place to, you know, make contacts, yeah. find out things, as well as have a good time. Anyway, Sandy came in. He came and joined the table I was on. We were chatting. And at one point, Sandy said to me, he said, um, how old are you getting now? You must be getting on. I said, well, funny enough, I said, I'll be 60 next year. Uh, and he said, uh, Really? He said, yeah, I said, I, and I said, my birthday is April the 4th, and that usually meant I was either travelling to the Masters or even at the Masters. And it turned out that, that my 60th birthday year, on the Monday of Masters week, um, that was my birthday. So Sandy said, well, we've got to do something. He said, have you ever played the par three course? I said, no, because very... Journalists, if they're lucky, can get come out of a ballot to play Augusta proper to play Augusta National on the Monday after the Masters. But I'm not aware of any who've played the par three. I'm not saying there aren't any. I'm just not aware of any who've played the par So I said, yeah, sure. He said, OK, we'll sort it out. Anyway, cut the story short. It was arranged for 11 o'clock on that Monday morning on my 60th birthday. Sunday said, get round to the par three Was course. it just you two? It was just a, and his caddy. All right. And his caddy. And, and Sandy said, uh, we'll meet. So I did. And there we were. And off we went. And he said, I'll give you a shot of hole, which, you know, I thought was a bit mean of him. <laughs> Two shots of hole. Anyway, he gave me a shot of hole. Uh, for some reason, on the first four holes, um, someone else took over my game. I don't know who it was. And um, after four holes, I was three up because I'd had, I think, three pars and a something, I mean, net pars and, and a something else. And, and, and Sandy hadn't had any birdies. Meanwhile... People were walking past the par three course to get into the course. Not everybody does, but these people were. And they saw Sandy and, of course, recognised him. Before I knew it, after about four holes, we had about 200 people with us. So so I'm three holes up against Sandy Lyle on my 60th birthday, on the par three course at Augusta, and we've got 200 people walking around with us. Unknown to me, 
some of them had asked the caddy, Sandy's caddy, who's the guy with, with Sandy Lyle? And, and he had told them, unknown to me, oh, he said he's, uh, he's called Bill. He's a, he's a former British amateur champion. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I, was, I think I was playing off 15 at the time. <laughs> and uh, uh, so unknown to, of course, what happened next on the 50 with the 200 people, I sculled my tee shot <laughs> 20 yards forward into the water. So, and so it got worse after that. I didn't win that par three cup, but the 200 people did come all the way around and applauded us off at the end, which was very, very funny and slightly embarrassing for me anyway. And uh, Sandy and I uh, then went in the clubhouse and had what turned out to be an extremely long lunch. <laughs> so that was my uh, par three story. So how many Augusta National Masters have you been to? I've been to 35. Wow. Um, so when was your first one? My first one was 1980. 1980. So You back- can ask me when my last one was, I can't remember. <laughs> so go on. back then, I assume you would have known a little bit about it, but you wouldn't have seen much because of TV coverage. I know we only really... Very well, you recent- never saw the front nine. No, very recently we've only seen the front nine, haven't yeah. we? Uh, so what was, that, what was that like, going to Augusta for the first time? It, 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 it was... It was terrific, and again, it it was a big, it was a huge, big event. But it was it was in compared to now, it was a slightly smaller event in the sense that it was golf fans who came to it. And now there's a huge corporate element, as there is to all these big golf tournaments, uh, which for me det- doesn't make them quite as good as they were. You know, I, I preferred it then. Um, it, it was, you know, things were smaller, and it, it. But but what impressed me was what impressed me, and and, and I say this to people who say, oh, I'm, I'm, I've got tickets, I'm going to the Masters next year, you know, the bucket list thing, uh, and they ask me, and I, I maybe tell them a couple of places to go at night to have something to eat or drink or whatever. But I say the thing that'll hit you, no matter how many times I or anybody else have written about it, is that when you walk out and see the course and start walking it, you'll go, I never realised it was so steep, so hilly. Yeah, they and say the 10th fairway is like a ski slope. The 10th fairway is like a ski slope. The lowest point of the course is the, is the 12th green, the par 3, of course, in the Amen Corner. If you started building there, you would be between 16 and 20 storeys high by the time you got level with the uh, 18th green. Wow. Uh, so it's... It, it, and that adds to the difficulty. When people say, well, it doesn't seem... It's right, you know, the fairways are wide, really. There's not really any rough... Not, certainly not if you compare it to Ro- Port Rush here, or as I keep calling it, Portsmouth. If you compare it to Port Rush here, there's no rough at Augusta. Not really, really. It's great for amateurs. It's great for, you know, for hacks like me when we do play it or when I have played it uh, because you can hit your ball anywhere unless you go behind a tree. You can find it and hit it and knock it out again. But the pros, the difficulty for the pros, because these fairways are so angled, you know, they're angled to the left, they're angled to the right, they're angled down, they're angled up. They're aiming, most fairways, they're trying to hit approximately a 20-yard by 20-yard square, which is the, the most level place on that fairway. Mm. So they're playing a different, completely different game. You know, you or I, if you're a much better golfer than me, but even you know you would just stand up and give it a whack. Yeah, of course. Just keep it in the tree line. Yeah, and you're happy. Give it a whack. You don't care. But if, if, if they're trying to hit that twenty-yard square, 
And if if you ever do, have, have you played? Uh, no, not no, yet. not yet. No, One not yet. Maybe. Let's say not yet. Okay. <laughs> so not yet. You'll see what I mean. Hopefully, when you do one day play Augusta Elliott, because you will see when you get on one side of the fairway, the ball is like six inches above your feet, mm. and and you're also facing down. You got a downhill lie as well. If you look over another side of the fairway, you'll see the rough. It's not never flat, but the flatter piece that they're aiming for. So it's it's uh, it's fun. It's it's the the most fun is on the greens. The greens, you, it, until you've played... And again, the difficult, the degree of difficulty in the greens are the angles and the steepness and, the, and, and what have you, you know. I mean, if you take the fourth hole, the, the par three, fourth hole, um, that green, if you can imagine a minimally a 45-degree angle hill, that's what that green is. Mm. If you're above the hole, you're dead. And it's a it's a two hundred yard hole as well. And now. it's a t- and it's a t- and it's a two hundred yard. When I played, you got to play with a caddy, and I did, never attempted to read a putt because these caddies are Augusta caddies, and they they know, and and he, he just read every putt for me. I, curiously, I hit that green. I was right at the top at the back, and the flag was in the the Sunday Masters position, which is down towards the front of the green. So I'm now thirty feet up above the hole. I'm looking at it. If I'd been hitting it, I would just have dribbled it off the toe of the putter straight towards the hole. Caddy said to me no, and he went over and stood about six feet, level with me, to my right. Opened his leg, his his feet as it were, and and said, that's the hole. It's six feet away from you. I want you to die a putt into where my feet are at the moment. He then had to move, walk away. So I'm hitting directly away from the hole which is 30 feet beneath me, to die a six-foot putt into where his feet were. Amazingly, I did that quite well. It got to the six feet, turned, and started going down the hill. You didn't two-putt it, did you? No, and finished six feet beneath the hole, (laughs) and I missed the six-foot putt up. (laughs) Decent three, best three-putt of your life. A terrific three-putt, but I I could have stood there for probably four months and not figured that out. Hmm. Uh, so moving on, another very close golfing relationship you have, perhaps the closest, is Peter Alice. Yes, Can you yes. tell us quickly a little bit about that relationship? I know you are writing a book with Alice at the moment. Yes, well. we've almost we've almost finished it. We got uh, I sent off eighty eighty four thousand words to the publisher last week, and uh, we're 000. and we're yes, I know, and uh, <laughs> two thousand of them are worth reading, honestly. <laughs> and uh, no, hopefully it's not bad. And the the first chapter is 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 about Jean Van der Velde and what that opened and Peter's commentary and what that was like, and then I thought we want to finish the book with uh, a bookend it by doing the final chapter on this Open at Royal Portrush. Peter played in the 1951 Open here. He's about 19 years old. Was that his first Open? No, no. I think it was his second or third. Yeah, and it would be great if it was first, wouldn't it? But I mean, from the book's point of view. But no, it was his second or third. He, he didn't make the cut in those days. Uh, they played 36 holes on the Saturday, so he played Thursday. Friday. He qualified. You had to qualify before it, and then he played the first two rounds Thursday, Friday, but didn't make the Saturday. So it's neat for him to be back here uh, all these years later. Um, he's now 88 years old and still as sharp as a tack. I've known him for 40. I first interviewed him in 1978, 79. 
So 40 Was he years. your closest uh, professional golfing friend? No. 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 But he's turned into be a very close friend. He's, he's tu- yes, 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 he has. Uh, uh, funny enough, we uh, uh, as chance as fate has taken me, I've ended up... Li- when I first interviewed him, uh, he lived in Yorkshire. Uh, and he now lives um, near a place called Hindhead in Surrey, and and I live uh, in a village just about four miles away. Mm. So we're almost neighbours. Um, the only difference being you could fit most of my house into his kitchen. <laughs> so he's done well, hasn't he? Yeah, he, he has. And and he he what I like about lots of things I like about Peter. But what I like about Peter is that he has done very. He, people who don't know a lot of people don't. A lot of people think he's just ever done television. But he was an outstanding golfer. I mean, he did mm. play an eight Ryder Cup, something like that. You know. Um, you know, finished quite high in open championships, won lots of time. You know, he if he was today, uh, he would be a at least a, like a Tommy Fleetwood to term of you know yeah. where you are. Uh, um, but what I, what I like about him is that he retains a sense of genuine wonder at the life he's had. All he ever did was set out to try to play golf to make a living, just to make a living. It, and he had no idea about doing television commentary. All that came about by accident. I mean, it was somebody made a decision, but it wasn't him trying to do it. He was overheard talking on a plane ride by a television producer, who wow. said afterwards said I was I couldn't help but I was sitting behind you, and the stories you were telling were very interesting. Have you ever thought of coming and doing? He was still a player at the time, and that's how he started doing it. So he's a nice man. He's a man of his age. He's eighty-eight. So as I say to him, you haven't quite made it into the second half of the 20th century, Peter. Never mind the 21st. But um, again, he has a he has a good sense of humor, and uh, he gives his good back. As we, he's he is he is a kind, uh, gen, he's a kind and a generous and a smart man, um, and he has a deep appreciation of the luck that he's had in life, and quite rightly has an appreciation of his talent. I I, it, I sat in the BBC commentary box for a couple of hours this morning, where they're, they're now doing for their highlight show, just to get some colour stuff for the stuff that I'm writing in the book. And I um, again, Ken Brown, who I've known for a long time, um, Ken was in there, and I I spoke with Ken and did a little interview with Ken that I'm going to put in the book as well. And Ken said a lot of great things and interesting things about Peter, but I'll, I'll just tell you one. He ended up with, he said, he said he is, the, as far as he and many of us are concerned, he said it's like working with the Jack Nicholas of television commentary. He said, and if you were ever paired with Jack Nicholas in terms of being a, a little team, you would expect to do well, wouldn't you? So <laughs> yeah. it's easy to do well with Peter as your co-commentator. Yeah, I grew up listening to him on the BBC, I'm sure many of... Yeah, uh, you guys listening to this will have done uh, yeah. a true legend, and I don't know how he still does it at the age of eighty-eight. No, so. I know, it, 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 and his memory, his memory for things is uh, uh, for names and play. Um, you know, I mean, as I say, I keep calling uh, Port Roche, uh, Portsmouth. He, you know, he he doesn't he doesn't have anything. You know, any any doesn't seem to have any problem. Man, he might be making them all up. I just assume that he's remembering them correctly. And that he did actually dance with Esther Williams. You, of course, will never have heard of Esther Williams, will you? Uh, no. She was a major film star, Hollywood film star at the time. Look her up. And an Olympic swimmer. 
<laughs> but it, Peter remembers these things, uh, and uh, but at the same time, you know, he 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 subscribes to Private Eye and and uh, um, reads the just to counter that he reads the Daily Mail every day. I think so. <laughs> he's he's a balanced he's a balanced human being. Describes himself as a Tory wet. <laughs> Bill, sorry, I didn't ask you. Uh, what is your favourite Masters from the forty odd you've attended? Thirty five. Yeah, yeah, 35, 35 Masters. Um, uh, you know, there's several that are special. Um, you know, Sandy winning it, uh, Sebi winning it for a start, but it was certainly Sandy winning it because Sandy and I were good friends at the time. It's great to see him do it. Uh, Jack Nicholas winning it at 46 was tremendous. But, you know, if, if, I, had, if I have to pick one, it would, be 19, it would be Tiger Woods winning his first Masters, and that was... That was just hugely significant uh, for the game. Um, you know, when I first when I first went my, uh, to the Masters in 1980, uh, the 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 golfers were not allowed to bring their own caddies with them. They had to have Augusta buddies because Augusta believed that a caddy should be a black guy, shouldn't be a white guy carrying clubs. I mean, you think about that now, and it's appalling, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's, it's appalling. Sorry. But at the time, it, it just, you know, it wasn't like we thought about it and thought it was okay. We just didn't think about it. It was just what happened. Of course, that changed as, as you know, did not having any women in the club. That, but, man, you've still got to be um, basically rich to be a member. But apart from that, uh, gender doesn't enter into it. But, you know, in the South... Some, a few years before Tiger won that Masters, I had I had become friendly with um, a very gentle, very nice, very large black guy called Arthur, who was the head bartender in the Augusta Clubhouse. And over the years, he and I formed uh, a genial relationship. I would arrive here, we would shake, we would shake hands, have a little embrace, and he would say, "Your usual, Mister." He would never call me Bill, no matter he called me Mister Elliot, sir. And he would he would pour me a glass of Chablis or whatever it was I was having at that time. And one year, um, a guy called Frank Clough, who's sadly no longer with us, he'd been chief football writer for The Sun and now he, he, he was in the last years of his career and didn't want the hurly-burly of football reporting, so he covered golf, which he loved. And Frank and I decided uh, to try to avoid going to a bar one night. We thought we'd take a, we'd take a break from bars. And I looked at what was on the cinema and a film called Mississippi Burning. Have you seen Mississippi Burning? No. Mississippi Burning is based on a true story set in the late 1950s, early 1960s, in which uh, two civil rights uh, workers were murdered in Mississippi. Um, and it's about the investigation of that, the corruption of the local police force, the Ku Klux Klan, I mean, the terrible racist horrible stuff that was going on at that time it's it's a you know get the film because it's one of the most powerful films i've ever seen and i i watched that film in a cinema in augusta with frank and in front of us were two young black guys and in the middle of the two black guys was a young black woman and at one point in the film where the this black guy was being you know really hurt badly treated the young black woman in front of me i could see she'd started sobbing uh, and I thought, you know, I wanted to reach forward and say, I'm really sorry, but it, I, of course I didn't. I mean, what the hell has he got to do? But it was very moving, and I turned to say something to Frank, and Frank was crying 
because of the woman. And then I started crying. So anyway, it was all terribly fun. And I'd seen in Augusta, you know, in those days, in the early 80s, through through the 80s, um, there, was, there was segregation. There was a form of apartheid. You, you didn't, you went in a bar, it was a white bar or it was a black bar. Um, you, you know, the two didn't seem to mix at all. And it was... It was kind of, it was very, impa- anyway, the next day I went, I went into the clubhouse and I said, Good morning again, Mr. Elliot, sir, said Arthur, what do you have to drink? And I said, uh, whatever. And, and nobody else was in or very few people were in. So I said, I said to Arthur, as he put, I said, Arthur, I want to see a film last night, Mississippi Burn. Have you seen it? He said, no, sir, no. And I said, oh, it's, it's about, the-. I said, Arthur, what was it like here in the 60s? And he put his hand on mine. And he looked at me and he said, Mr. Elliot, sir, you don't want to know. And I looked at him and I said, Arthur, sir, you've just told me. Yeah. And I put my hand on top of his hand. Um, and it was, I think, f- approximately four years later, by which time Arthur had retired. He, was no, he had gone after many years' service at the club. Uh, so Arthur wasn't there, and that was when Tiger won. I have never bothered. I've usually been working, or just even if I've not been too busy writing stuff, I've never bothered to go to watch the green jacket ceremony on the lawn outside the clubhouse. You know who want who cares? I went to watch that one. Tiger was the only one I, be- and I went and I went up on the on the on the first floor of the clubhouse. A big veranda goes round of it, so I get a better view. And as Tiger was having the green jacket on him, I looked down beneath me and a whole bunch of young black, probably from the college, who were all dressed in white with black trousers, white jackets, who'd been working, earning some money working as waiters that week. And they were whooping and hollering and high-fiving each other um, as Tiger got that black jacket on. And I looked at that... The green jacket. I said, what say, black jacket? Uh, Sorry, Freudian slip. As as he got that daft bloody blazer on him, you know. And... and, uh, I thought of Arthur, and I, I, I'm not even sure Arthur was still alive. You know, please God he was. As I thought, I hope he's watching this. I hope he's seeing this. Because this, this is important. This is more important than golf. This is important. That's my most memorable Masters. Wow. Bill, thank you very much. My pleasure. For joining the clubhouse. Hopefully, listeners, you enjoyed Bill's stories. I'm sorry we couldn't have more. I wish we could have more. But it's a busy week here in Portrush. And somebody's just opened a bottle of wine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe it was a bottle of beer. (laughs) But yeah, Bill, thanks, a pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. I hope I wasn't too boring. (laughs) Bill, uh, thank you.